0: You're listening to Colorado Edition from K1C. Welcome back. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, September 30th. Climate change and the economy are becoming more and more inseparable. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, climate-related disasters have caused an average of $3 billion in damage in Colorado over the last several years. Some view a transition to a greener economy as a way to meet climate priorities and save money. KUNC's Bo Baker spoke with Bob Keefe, the executive director of the advocacy group Environmental Entrepreneurs and author of Climatenomics Washington, Wall Street and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet.
2: Colorado is definitely among a more energized group of states in the U.S. pushing a clean economy, and yet it still feels like it's stagnant in some ways. There's a lot of emphasis on growth and drawing business to the state without having environmental policies in place to keep mitigating climate change. So what's your suggestion for tying continued economic growth to addressing climate challenges?
3: Well, I think first and foremost, Bo, is the realization that climate change is an economic issue. Last year alone, we had $150 billion worth of damage from climate-related disasters in our country. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, Bo, really. I mean, those are the direct costs of climate change. But if you look at things like homeowner's insurance, up 40% over a decade's time. In Colorado alone, up 17%, I believe, last year alone. Uh, Look at things like food costs. When you have droughts that are suppressing crop production in Colorado and other states, it makes the cost of everything from chicken to cornflakes go up. Uh, Look at the cost of fire suppression. So really, we've got to do something about the economic costs of climate change that are hitting us all now in the wallet.
2: Efforts to switch over to a quote-unquote clean economy seem way behind schedule. Why haven't things been moving faster? How do we get them to speed up?
3: Well, that's a, that's a great question. They, and what I would say is that they have sped up quite a bit in the past few years uh, as kind of the, the technology and the need has become more commonplace. Right now, the cheapest power available is solar and wind, no doubt about it. Look at things like uh, high-efficiency HVAC systems and uh, hot water heaters and heat pumps and Energy Star appliances. All of those things are are now mainstream, if you will, and it makes it tougher for anybody to find reasons not to shift to cleaner energy. And that includes big companies. Why? Because it's the cheapest power available, and this has become a bottom-line issue for businesses uh, and for governments, and when that happens, it filters down throughout the economy.
2: How can businesses and investors here in Colorado help move us in the right direction?
3: Well, they can realize again that the cheapest energy that they can use is solar and wind right now, uh, and they they should be investing in that and using that because it's going to not just impact beneficially their bottom lines but because it's going to help reduce carbon emissions. They need to look at electrifying their fleets. And now we have the technology to do that and the cost savings that comes with that. And they need to talk to their lawmakers. They need to help lawmakers realize that this is a business issue. This is an economic issue.
2: Are new climate policies from the Biden administration really going to be effective? Does the Inflation Reduction Act actually have teeth to it when it comes to environmental policy?
3: Well, first of all, I think it's very important to recognize in in the scope of this discussion and everything we've been talking about that this is, in fact, the biggest climate policy we've uh, ever passed in this country. And it happens to be an economic bill that's called the Inflation Reduction Act. It will invest about $370 billion into clean energy and clean energy programs in our country. The other thing it does is it sets aside $27 billion for a green bank uh, and also authorizes a huge uh, increase in the Department of Energy's loan guarantee program, which really provides the seed capital for a lot of clean energy, clean ag, energy efficiency startup companies to get going. And that's significant.
2: Bob Keefe is an author and the executive director of Environmental Entrepreneurs, a environmental economic policy think tank. Bob, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today.
3: And likewise. Thank you, Bo.
0: Norovirus is a nasty stomach bug that's usually associated with cruise ships and restaurants. It can sicken people for days with nausea and vomiting. As KUNC's Luke Runyon reports, the virus is so contagious that outbreaks can pop up in some unexpected places, like the Grand Canyon.
1: Jackie King and a group of 14 friends launched their rafts into the Colorado River in early May. The trip started smoothly, other than it being unseasonably warm. But when they ran into other rafters, they were warned. Norovirus was sweeping through the canyon. By day nine, one person in King's group was sick. Stomach troubles.
4: After patient zero, it was one to two people a day going down. Um, Our worst day was when we ran Upset Rapid.
1: Upset is a huge, roiling, whitewater rapid right in the middle of the canyon.
4: We had three people go down almost instantly. After we got through the rapid, um, people vomiting over the side of the boat just couldn't hold anything in.
1: King became ill that same day. Her group had a military-grade metal rocket box to use as a toilet. That's required of all rafters to store human waste from the three-week-long trip. And theirs was getting a lot of use.
4: You're sitting on a rocket box in the outdoors, in the middle of nowhere, hugging a bucket. Um, And it's, I mean, it's about as uncomfortable as you can imagine.
1: King's group wasn't alone in its misery. Justice Burkett and his wife backpacked the canyon two weeks after King floated through.
5: I would say about two hours after I started drinking the water from the river, um, my stomach was in tremendous pain. Like, it felt like there was like a balloon being blown up from inside of me that was like being overfilled.
1: Both King and Burkett were part of what a new CDC report calls the largest documented outbreak of norovirus in the Grand Canyon backcountry. From April to June of this year, there were more than 200 confirmed cases, and likely a lot more that went uncounted. Sharon Hester is with Arizona Raft Adventures, which outfits trips in the canyon. She says a few of their guides got sick this spring, and it can be tough to keep germs from spreading even in the great outdoors.
4: What they do is... Um, try to put them in a boat uh, where they're the only one rowing or they're the only person in that boat. Or if there's uh, you know, someone else sick, it would be the sick boat <laughs> where everybody would try to stay away.
1: Hester says norovirus has been a problem in the canyon for years. The virus can live in the river's tepid water and then easily spread among groups who all use the same toilets and eat communally. The CDC report says the virus can even survive in beach sand, where rafters set up camps, allowing it to spread between trips. As the number of tourists visiting the national park has grown and outbreaks have become more frequent over the years, Hester says raft companies have been forced to change protocols.
4: Don't vomit in the river, vomit in a garbage bag. Um, You know, isolate people, hand washing, you know, it got more and more strict, um, making sure the water was always purified.
1: By the time Jackie King's group of 15 people got off the river, all but four in her group had come down with norovirus. They'd even started adding small amounts of bleach to their drinking water to try and purify it. Even with all the stomach trouble, would it keep her away from another Grand Canyon trip?
4: Oh no, no. I like, I am chomping at the bit to go back down um, and have a different experience.
1: A trip where no one has to hug a bucket. I'm Luke Runyon in Grand Junction, Colorado.
0: This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. We touched base this week with our colleagues at the Colorado Sun to learn more about the news they're covering. Reporter Michael Booth spoke with KUNC's Beau Baker about the stories the Sun is featuring.
2: Let's begin, Michael, with State Representative Tracy Burnett. The Democrat from Boulder County is facing questions about her residency after she changed her voter registration address last year. What's the story here?
5: The redistricting required by every decade census is really stirring up some trouble in Colorado politics this year, or at least the way some politicians have handled it is stirring up that trouble. Jesse Pollard reports that Boulder County Democrat and State Representative Tracy Burnett's status is now being questioned by some Republicans. Burnett's district boundaries change and she bought a new home almost a year ago that is inside the boundaries of what would be her new district. But Republicans are asking officials to investigate whether Burnett actually spends time there or lives there or whether she's actually stayed in her older home in the old district. Remember these questions have also tripped up Democratic State Senator Pete Lee of Colorado Springs He was indicted by an El Paso County grand jury on suspicion of lying about his residence before voting in the 2020 presidential primary. A Republican has also been caught up in residency questions this year. In Burnett's case, she has refused to discuss details of her residency with the Colorado Sun.
2: Are there any real repercussions that Burnett is facing here?
5: It's complicated because one window for challenging someone like Burnett has already closed. The ballots are set and the time to challenge with the secretary of state is already gone. But Burnett could face questions from Boulder County prosecutors who could look at whether any laws were violated.
2: Gotcha. Moving on, Colorado has a new universal preschool program. It's launching in the next school year. There's concern from some child care providers that this program might do more harm than good. Michael, what are they worried about?
5: A lot of people were excited about Colorado moving to provide universal preschool for its children in the next school year, and they're still excited. But Erica Burnley reports that the big expansion of daycare and education time also requires a new kind of provider workforce or new skills and new requirements for the workforce that's already there. And it's coming at a time when Colorado and many other states already have shortages of places where preschoolers can safely play and learn. Erica spent time with existing daycare providers They now have to decide whether to get the training and facilities they need to become a sanctioned preschool provider. It's not as simple as adding a few new books on your bookshelf. If providers decide they can't add preschool levels to their mix of kids, their parents may take them to another daycare. So there's definitely going to be some rearranging and sorting out who the daycare and preschool providers will be for Colorado's children in the next few years.
2: Is there a sense of the types of providers that the state program would be a good fit for versus ones that might opt out of it?
5: Well, state officials say they are working hard to set the rules of universal preschool to both encourage existing providers to take on preschool and to get existing schools to add preschool programs. One key to this, of course, that they say they're well aware of is setting the state payment rates at levels that ensure the providers a living wage.
2: And it gives me great pleasure to wrap up our conversation today with some environmental news that's actually good. Michael, Colorado's state fish is on the up and up. What's the latest from Parks and Wildlife?
5: It's certainly a rare thing these days on the environment beat when we can report some unqualified success. That's not to say all this wasn't complicated. The state hasn't treated the greenback cutthroat trout very well over the decades, despite it being the state's official swimmer. For decades, officials thought it was actually extinct. But a few years ago, wildlife officials found a breeding population of greenbacks in Bear Creek, up the hill from Colorado Springs, and have worked very hard to protect it. Kevin Simpson wrote about the complex process of shocking the fish Extracting their eggs and sperm, returning them to local waters, then carefully hauling that reproductive material up to a hatch, hatchery near Leadville. And once they get the fingerlings from those hatcheries, volunteers have to carry them in backpacks and water tanks up the hill. They put them in Herman Gulch, which is a popular hiking spot off of I-70 near Eisenhower Tunnel. And now they find that those fish there are reproducing on their own, which is a big landmark or watermark in recovering the population from its threatened
2: status. Well, go greenback, go. We'll hope for the fish's continued success. Michael, thanks again for joining me today.
5: Thanks for your time.
0: That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Thanks for listening. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday. Just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If there's a story you'd like to hear, send us an email at coloradoedition at k1c U1c.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Have a great weekend.